Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to a very merry Money Talks. We're taking a break from the news of the week to look back over the peaks and troughs of the past year in business, finance, and economics. I'm Philip Coggan, but readers might know me as Bartleby for my weekly column on the world of work, a world many of us will mercifully be escaping for a few days. And I've lured three of the finest away from the pre-Christmas chaos with the promise of mulled wine, mince pies, and chocolate coins. Here and ready to unpick the threads of the year are Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor. Hi, Phil. Great to be here. Helen Joyce, our finance editor. Hi, Phil. And last but certainly not least, Henry Tricks, our Schumpeter columnist. Hello, Phil. OK, so let's get the ball rolling with the stories of the year. We want to hear the events, trends and revelations that shaped the past 12 months on your different beats. So, Helen, let's start with you. What have you brought along for us today? Really shamelessly, I want to talk to you about my own special report on banking that I did this year. So as the finance editor, I don't get to do very much reporting and writing. And this was a delightful five weeks to get away from my desk and go and travel. And I went to countries in Asia I hadn't visited before and looked at the way that retail banking is digitising. And it was very striking. I mean, people know how much things are moving in China, but they may not know what, say, Singapore is doing or in Korea. You know, I discovered that uh, this Kakao, which is this uh, chat app that Koreans adore, which has these strange characters like, you know, a piece of pickled radish or a, a friendly lion, that these are now the front men, the front characters of a retail banking brand, uh, the Kakao Bank. And then when we talked about the piece when I got back and when we were writing the leader and organising to get it on the cover, the people who had written previous banking reports said to me that they had not thought that this would happen in retail banking. This has been the first year where I haven't been into a bank branch all year. So all of my banking has been done digitally. And what I found out the other day was that Lloyds Bank, which only two years ago was in government, you know, basically in government ownership, has poured billions into digitalising and whatever. So it is quite, even here in fusty old Britain, the banks seem to be digitalising fast. I mean, Britain is actually one of the places that's moved quite fast. And that's because the regulators are very keen for it to happen for reasons to do with competition. Is it digitalising too fast, though? I was up in the Dales earlier this year, and the last cash point in Grassington, nice touristy village up there was closing. So if you're an old person in Grassington, not easy to get to the nearest town. How are you going to get your cash out? Yes, exactly. And what happens when your mum sends you a cheque? That's my concern. Yes. Somebody left behind. Well, Patrick. No, nobody has sent me a cheque for, for a terribly <laughs> long time is the answer to that one. The only person I still write cheques for is my son's music teacher. Patrick, as business affairs editor, you're looking across the entire field. So what's the most important story you've come across? Well, I think the story that unites all of those fields is actually the trade war and, and the conflict between America and China. And at one end, you see what the politicians do, what they say, the, the uh, negotiations, the hostile tweets, the summits. 
And then beyond the politicians, you see the ripple effect of that changing all sorts of different aspects of the economy. So the tech firms working out if they need to split their supply chains, uh, the banking system globally trying to work out who's subject to American sanctions, who's not, including potentially Huawei, the big uh, Chinese tech firm, and really the entire system of globalization beginning to adjust to this new world of superpower conflict. The weirdest thing about all of that is it doesn't seem to actually have hurt that much yet. So this year of really unprecedented trade tensions has also been one in which America's stock market has gone up by roughly 25%. Yes, but that's because central banks have reacted to signs of a slowing economy by easing monetary policy, isn't it? The world economy, which was going really well in 2017, early 2018, is not growing as fast anymore. I think that's right. Although I think if we were all standing here you know, a few years ago and someone said, imagine a world in which there were tariffs, there were bans on certain companies, you know, the leaders of the two superpowers were, were being rude about each other in public, I think we'd probably have predicted a global recession or something more scary than, than the scenario we've actually seen this year. But presumably, Patrick, looking ahead a year or, or two, the risk here is that some of the standards that we've become accustomed to as global standards, so the fact that we can use our mobile phones in China or in America or whatever, the risk, I guess, of this balkanization of tech is that we will have a world with two different competing standards or even more than two. And there will be a bit of a battleground in parts of the developing world for whether it is Chinese technology that wins or American technology that wins. Is that right? Yeah. And I think one interpretation of of this apparently quite benign year is the implications of splitting technology and, and the financial system and business system are so big. It's such a hard thing to do that almost we're in the kind of phony period uh, when everyone's still sitting waiting to see what the politicians end up doing. So one of the strange things about a time like this is that there's so much news and it's so hard to distinguish between what's the weekly news and where this is going in the longer term. So big shout out actually to our trade correspondent, Samaya Keynes, who's done the fantastic job of somehow managing to write new and fresh things with each barrage of Trump tweets or you know distinguish between what's happening when the World Trade Organization is really being reshaped or what's just much more noise. So she's done a great job, I think, of both doing those sort of newsy stories, but also giving you a feeling of how they fit together and how the whole world trade system is being reshaped. You know, there's these different levels and these are strange stories as a result. Henry, you're travelling all around the world as Schubert economist. What story jumps out at you? It's a story that I could um, I could report from within my own home because um, anyone who is an Amazon Prime subscriber is aware of the fact that delivery is getting faster and faster. And this is something that, weirdly enough, has had repercussions in many of the columns that I've written this year, whether it's FedEx struggling against competition in, in the US or whether it's you know Walmart and its battle against Amazon or whether it is... Kroger's supermarket and how it's responding to the kind of the challenge of digitalization um, or Ocado, this British firm, which is also, you know, really trying to accelerate what it's doing. So I found this extraordinary sense of how the landscape, in a sense, of commerce is changing. And we are seeing 
you know, warehouses being built where shopping malls used to stand. And one of the things that I find particularly surprising about this and quite intriguing is that chief executives and businesses in general are worried about technological disruption. But the people who are making out like bandits here are not necessarily just the Silicon Valley types. It's also those old property barons, the guys who, you know, basically are investing in those warehouses. So Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman, those guys have suddenly got really big into logistics and warehouses housing, prologists as well. So it's a... It's but an, not if they invested in retail property. Well, no, definitely not. So in fact, if yeah, exactly. If you're investing in retail property, your values have gone down terribly. But if you can replace that with the warehousing, you're doing fine. It's funny how that links back, actually, because one of the big things that people said to me the whole time I was doing my reporting is that maybe the tech giants are going to be the ones who move into banking, because for them, there could be some synergies. You know, if you're Amazon Prime, you can imagine adding retail banking as something that would support your offer. And Google has said, since I wrote that, that they're going to go into retail banking next year in America. And people, you know, Facebook is thinking of Libra, it's proposed cryptocurrency. And all these things are kind of working together. They're going, you know, the world is going digital in one way. But as you say, that requires quite a lot of really analog stuff behind it in different places. And Patrick, none of us have mentioned WeWork, which I think perhaps a lot of people might feel is the big story of the year. That's investing in property. That was one of the hottest IPOs or going to be of the year. And yet, in just a few short weeks, it all seemed to dissipate. Why do you think that was? Well, as a journalist, it just doesn't get better than the unicorn implosion. Um, it has all the hubris, the hype, catastrophically bad finances. And, and then suddenly there's this moment when uh, it, everything seems to evaporate. And at the end, you're left with a quite small loss-making business and there's sort of wreckage left there. The nice thing about it is is really also unlike some kind of crises, the implications don't seem to be that big, really. It hasn't caused a global recession or ruined the lives of lots of people. But it is an enduring lesson that the power of Silicon Valley and Wall Street to take ordinary businesses, rather like your warehouses, Henry, and dress them up as incredible innovations. And part of the difficulty of assessing technological change is when is it real or when is a, a, just a label being applied to bog standard things like pizza delivery or renting out offices? Well, my story of the year couldn't be further away from WeWork, really. The thing that had the biggest impression on me was a visit in the summer to the Fox's Academy in Minehead. And this is where they take um, kids with learning disabilities and train them for work. I met three kids in particular, Chris, Emily and Cameron, who were learning to work as waiters and chefs and front of house staff. Now, normally only 6% of people with learning disabilities get into employment. 80% of the people who work at the Fox's Academy go on to jobs in the hospitality business. And I don't think anybody could go there and not come away sort of inspired and impressed at what a good job they're doing. And the sad business is that it's very hard to get local councils to pay for the kids to go through the training, which takes three years. But the net result, if they are, is for society is such a good thing. They can live independently, they can earn money and they contribute. I only hope to discover more stories like that next year where you, know, you can go away and think capitalism isn't just about you know, profits and balance sheets, but sometimes it can really make a difference to people's lives. You really make me nostalgic for reporting. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
Well, let's have a look at the people of 2019. You've all met lots of people in the travels and the interviews you've done over the year. So let's start with Patrick. Who is the person that stands out for you over the last year? Well, the most extraordinary encounter I, I had of the year, along with several of our colleagues in, in China, was meeting Mr. Ren, who is the chief executive and founder of Huawei, the Chinese tech company at the center of the storm. And, and uh, we were there in a, a huge marble palace in Shenzhen in southern China with a massive picture of the Battle of Waterloo along one side of the room. And Mr. Ren uh, walked in wearing a tangerine blazer and a broad smile and then spent a couple of hours telling us about how his company was going to be able to survive the American restrictions on, on doing business. And it was a, a very palpable sense of the trade war really affecting very big organizations. And you've been around the world too, Henry. Who sticks out from your option? Well, I met Vicky Holub of Occidental, not this year, but a few years ago when I was in the Permian Basin in Texas. And uh, she's extraordinary in the sense that she is, first of all, the only female oil executive in America. And she also has this kind of green agenda, um, which is particularly bizarre in the oil industry. Anyhow, she was um, really put out this year by the fact that uh, Chevron came in and tried to steal a company that she wanted to merge with, Anadarko. So she went into a bidding war against Chevron. She found that pretty hard to finance. So she got Warren Buffett on her side. I mean, it hasn't been a triumph for shareholders, this potential bidding war. She ended up winning Anadarko, but uh, she's now facing an activist kind of revolt from the likes of Carl Icahn. But yeah, having met her and having kind of seen this tough woman who's really made her mark, you can't really kind of underestimate her staying power. Henry, I was going to ask, how did Warren Buffett do? I suspect we don't have to struggle too much to know the answer, <laughs> he, but did he come out he, well from that episode? He gets an 8% coupon um, forever, it looks like, from his uh, his deal. So typical Warren Buffett, you know, he looks like a saviour, but he makes a really tidy packet in return. Well, Helen, talking about tough women, not, of course, just yourself, but uh, your pick of the year. Caroline Criado Perez, I think. So I didn't get to meet her, but I interact with her on social media as so much happens now. Um, I think you mentioned her book, Invisible Women, which has won a lot of prizes this year in your column. And we did a podcast with her. Yes. Well, so you met her, but I didn't. So Caroline's book is about the data that is missing, basically, the data about women. So, so many things in the world are based on men. So just basic things like where seatbelts are in cars or the crash tests that we do in cars. But also we don't track the data as well as we should on a lot of the things that affect women differently from men. And the book is really joining together a lot of things that those of us who write about or have written about social trends and economics know, but in a very powerful and engaging way in one book. And it really got a lot of attention. So on social media, poor old Caroline, one of the things she talked about in the book is how the queues for women's toilets are always much longer than those for men's. Because women you know, take longer in the toilet, their clothes are more complicated, they can't use urinals, they often have kids with them. And people don't create twice as many toilets as, for women as, as for men as they should. Well, Caroline has turned into effectively the toilet queen on social media because <laughs> her Twitter account is just people taking photographs of the queue for the women's toilets all around the world and then including her name and saying invisible women, you know. Does so any she's the toilet country queen. do it well? No. 
No. So it's a truly universal affliction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is part of the problem here just that there are not enough women engineers? I mean, Vicky Holub is an interesting example of a woman, a female engineer, who's gone on to become top of her industry. Gosh, we could talk about this for the rest of the day, Henry. But, you know, when women get into these positions, often women don't want to be sidelined as the women's issue person, you know, and, and that's a difficulty. But yes, of course, the world hasn't been designed for women. It was designed for men. And that's the central point of Invisible Women. We have to retrofit the world for women to move around in because it was designed by and for men. And indeed, we even had astronauts this year who couldn't do a spacewalk because spacesuits were designed for men <laughs> and not for women. So and we had a good story, actually, in the paper just a few weeks ago about um, how women are more likely to get nausea from using VR headsets because women's eyes are closer together than men's are. And so they, they get motion sickness. Phil, who is your person of the year? My person dates back really to my Buttonwood column writing days, and it's Neil Woodford. Now, I wrote many a column about passive management index tracking and how difficult it is for people who try and beat the market to do so on a consistent basis. And people would write in and say, what about Neil Woodford? Neil Woodford does it year after year after year. And so this year, he spectacularly proved my point. He'd broken off from his original fund management group, got a one fund with £10 billion in, and he decided to do things a bit differently. So he decided to invest in unquoted stocks and um, small stocks. The problem with that is if you need to sell those stocks, then you can't do so because they're illiquid. And what happened was he didn't pick very well. People started to withdraw their money and he had to suspend dealing in the fund because they couldn't get the money out. And this started in the summer and the funds were suspended for an extremely long time. The whole business had to be closed down. And this is the difficulty. It is possible to find people who beat the market year after year in retrospect. You don't know they're going to do it in advance. By the time they've sort of proved it's statistically worthwhile, it's usually 10 years or so, by which stage they're investing an awful lot of money. And when you're investing an awful lot of money, it's much more difficult to beat the market. This is even true of Warren Buffett, who we've already mentioned. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that gets put out by some fund managers saying, oh, index tracking is like socialism. Index tracking is like, <laughs> you know, they don't supervise companies properly and all the rest of it. But there's still... Not the majority of the market, still only about a quarter of the market. And they save ordinary people a lot of money. And those who believe that you could still find top performing managers have seen Neil Woodford this year. And hopefully in 2020, they'll think again. So that was one of the most pleasant sorts of stories, Phil. The ones that go, I told you yeah, so. Exactly. Schadenfreude on stilts it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, let's move on to the number of the year. Uh, since this is Money Talks, I've asked each of our panellists to bring in one number, a figure or statistic that stopped them in their tracks this year. I don't want you to simply tell us our answers. I'd like each of you to say the number and a clue to what it might refer to and see if the rest of us can guess the story behind the stat. So I'm going to start off. My number is minus 63%. OK, and they'll give you a clue. It's a particularly cryptic question. 
Oh, is it something to do with Bitcoin? It is, absolutely. Is it how much it's fallen over the year? It is how much it has fallen since its peak of $19,900. And Bitcoin is yet another thing, a bit like active management, where people said, oh, it's going to go to $100,000 and you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Gosh, Phil, you do really like (laughs) saying that you know what it's all about. I bear a grudge. And I think the thing... You didn't buy any. No, I didn't buy any. And lots of people did buy them. And again, I think it's, you know, little old ladies and, and, you know, naive people who were suckered in. And the problem with it is the argument for cryptocurrencies is that we're entirely limited in supply uh, and they're going to replace conventional money. But there are lots of cryptocurrencies, so they're not entirely limited in supply. And the definition of money is that it's either a means of exchange or a store of value. It's not a means of exchange. I haven't bought my Starbucks today with cryptocurrency. And it's not a store of value because it goes up and down so much as that minus 63% shows. So it's really only if central banks introduce cryptocurrencies that we're really going to be talking about this as a long-term figure. But Phil, isn't there a danger of you being a bit worthy about this? Don't people just love the thrill of the chase? Isn't that why people back Neil Woodford while people go into cryptocurrencies? Because they like the idea that they can they can win as well as yeah, lose. they like it when they win. I mean, nobody <laughs> likes losing sixty three percent. I mean, that's not the promise. The promise is just money for nothing, isn't it? Yes, of course. I think if you're a professional investor, you know all the risks. It's a small part of your portfolio, and all the rest of it. That's fine. It's when it's individuals who suddenly think they're going to put you know half their money into it. I mean, it's one of those things like the taxi driver is telling you, or your hairdresser yes. is telling you. It's one of those moments, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Patrick, what's your number of the year? If you read The Economist carefully, you will have spotted this. My number is $650 billion. And the clue is that the answer is very entertaining. Oh, what company? He's talking about a company. Is this the value of Netflix? Uh, Or is it the the value of Netflix or uh, the streaming... Uh, That is the number that one of our writers, Tamsin Booth, calculated for the total amount invested by Hollywood and TV production companies like Netflix in content over the last five years. And that's uh, a key element of this enormous boom in video streaming that's happened over the last 12 months, culminating in Disney's decision a few weeks ago to launch a Netflix-like product where you can get the entire Disney catalogue delivered down your internet connection for, for a tiny amount per month. And do you think they're all going to work? I mean, uh, I have Netflix, I confess, and I watch The Crown, but quite a lot of it on Netflix is not very good. Oh, but other people like those ones, don't they? Isn't that the point? It's so data-driven. There's somebody out there for whom that's the perfect programme, and there are enough of them. Yes, but if you've got Netflix, do you want... Yes, would you then by Disney Plus. And, and I think it's interesting to see how different entertainment giants are forming different niches. So Disney Plus is including ESPN. It's including... All I care about is the superheroes, personally. I have two sons and that's what we watch in my house. You know, massive Marvel fan here. All the spin-offs, more, more, more spin-offs. That's what I want. I'm sure you're going to get them, actually. So don't <laughs> yeah, need to worry great. about so that. There's yeah. my wish for 2020. More superhero spin-offs and I'm going to get them. <laughs> OK, Helen, what's your number? It is 46% and I don't think I should give you a clue because I think there's two reasons. One is everyone's guessing too easily and the other one is you should know this one, Phil. It's very much your sort of expertise in past lives. Is it that the Japanese stock market has gone up 46%? No. You said Japan, though. 
Oh, if okay. it's Japan, is it? Is it? Uh, is this red knickers? Is this? Um, is, is this? What? Is, is this that my area of expertise? Is, is this red knickers? Is this the number of elderly? Um, What's red knickers? Well, because in in Japan, when you get above a certain age, you go and buy red knickers. I did not this know is, that, uh, Henry. This and is if I had known that, supposed to bring you good luck if you're if you're sixty years old or over. If I had known that, I would have definitely have edited it into the free exchange column, <laughs> okay. which was about Japan and the lessons that it has for the rest of the world. So it's the world's highest old age dependency ratio, and it's expected to rise by another twenty percentage points over the coming decades. And the rest of the world is going in the same direction, but Japan is there already. And what this means for its economy, what it means for its workers and what it means for its central bank, its financial policies, its monetary policies, you know, it's huge. Well, Henry, it's time for your number of the year. Okay, my number of the year is 181. And my clue is that a lot of people have a stake in this number. Oh, is that to do with betting? No, okay. Fake meat? Nope. Oh, that was a good guess. The highest number you can't get in darts, or the lowest number you if can't I get. If I turned it round, if I turned it round the other way and, and said, said no, and said the corollary is two, and Patrick's number of the year would probably be those two. I have no idea what you're talking about. This is the most extraordinary clue. Right. So 181 is the number of chief executives on the business roundtable uh-huh. who signed the uh, the statement in support of purpose and putting stakeholder value ahead of shareholder value. And the reason why I say that Patrick would applaud the number two is because there were two people who were holdouts, and one of them was Steve Schwartzman. And I distinctly (laughs) remember Patrick saying to me, I respect that guy more now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it caught, I think, everyone by surprise that that the business roundtable was going to do this. Um, and it brought the, the terrible phrase purpose washing, uh, which is now <laughs> I've heard around and about. But there's no doubt that purpose and the purpose of business has become one of the trends of the year. And I don't know what you think of it, Patrick. Well, I think it, it links in also, I think, to a lot of American CEOs looking at the presidential election and worrying that a candidate from the left will win and there'll be a big kind of confrontation between the political system and big business in America. So part of the objective, I think, is is to kind of preempt that and particularly Elizabeth Warren, who I think most CEOs are worried about. Yes, there's definitely a political dimension to it. But having said that, I don't think that that purpose is just to be sneered at. I do think that there are political cycles, there are economic cycles. Sure, if there was a recession, maybe people would stop talking about purpose um, as they start you know, firing people and whatever. But I think that as a way of providing meaning to your company, of attracting employees, of attracting consumers, it's important. In an era of climate change as well, I think people are right to ask, does my company represent something beyond profitability? Does it actually leave crisis in its wake or does it leave something more positive? And finally, the bit you're all dreading, which is you've got to make a prediction about 2020. So, Helen, what do you think 2020 holds? Well, I'm rather struck by the idea that next year in the elections in America, something is going to be on the agenda really properly that has long been exceptional in America, which is parental leave, paid parental leave. America has long been one of the only two countries not to offer women any paid time off work. And everybody across the board now thinks that's a good idea. More states are introducing laws. So next year might really 
really be the moment at which America gets its arse in gear and notices that women are actually the ones who have babies and do need some time off and do need to get paid while they have those babies if they're to stay being part of the economy. Henry. If we're not all talking about recession next year and if we're still talking about the climate, I think that next year will be the year of hydrogen. And I say that because Japan is hosting the Olympics. They are creating the first hydrogen-powered village. There's going to be a real focus in Japan on on hydrogen. There's hydrogen-made steel. There is all sorts of initiatives underway around Europe and elsewhere to try and create green hydrogen. And I think it's just about time that it becomes a main topic. Well, that sounds like parental leave, about time. Yeah. And Patrick? My prediction is that while we might have some kind of trade agreement between China and the US, it's going to become really clear that the underlying tensions there are not going to be resolved. And all of the companies and investors who've been sitting on the fence a little bit are going to start responding. And that means, for example, Uh, uh, banks bifurcating their businesses so that one chunk of the bank deals with China, one deals with America, big tech supply companies splitting themselves down the middle. And finally, the kind of tangible impact of these several years of trade tensions begins to really change what's happening on the ground. What's your prediction then, Phil? Give us a cheerful Bartleby one. (laughs) I was going to give an uncheerful one about the bond market. I think finally 2020 might be a year when we have a big bond market crisis. I think you'll be proved right again, won't you? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and then you'll be able to say yes again. (laughs) I told you so. Come back and say you didn't believe me. (laughs) I've been saying that for years, Phil. (laughs) Well, to find out if you're right, and I'm not endlessly repeating how often I was right in the past, listen to Money Talks in 2020. Thank you very much to Patrick Fowles, Henry Trix, Helen Joyce for that uh, run around the triumphs and disasters of 2019. And dear listeners, thank you for listening to this special edition of Money Talks. From all of us here at The Economist, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bartleby. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And if you haven't got one already, our bumper Christmas double issue of The Economist is on all good newsstands until the new year. Do pick up a copy or subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Philip Coggan, and in London, this is The Economist. Hey, thank you. Hey. I might actually have a mince pie. Good. Can we eat that? Yeah, I think so. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.